Luke chapter 1, verse 26 is where we're going to start reading here in just a couple of moments. We've been making our way through this Advent series through the lens of what is God fixing in the birth of Jesus Christ. We've been using this line from the Christmas hymn, The weary world rejoices. There's a thrill of hope at the birth of Jesus Christ. And a world that is weary and broken and weighed down under its own sin and our sin, it rejoices at the birth of Jesus Christ. So what is it that God is mending with the birth of Jesus? What's reintroduced into our experience because of Christmas? We've kept looking back at how God originally created things, put them together for us, how creation itself was designed by God for us, how that relationship between us and God and each other was originally designed by God, and then how all of that is marred and broken and pulled apart because of our rebellion, our decision to listen to our enemy instead of to the God who created us. And so God is busy restoring and healing and fixing broken things with the birth of Jesus Christ. We've talked about that Jesus will save his people from their sins. We've talked about that Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us again, and God is restoring all of these things. And now this morning, what we're going to spend time with is we're going to talk about God restoring his kingdom through the birth of Jesus Christ. God is restoring his power and his authority over all things in the birth of Jesus Christ on that first Christmas day. Now that might strike us as a little odd. Our Western culture has a really interesting, strange relationship with the concepts of power and of authority. And by and large, we don't like those words. We sort of buck against those concepts, right? And so it might strike us as odd to say that in the birth of Jesus Christ, in that humble manger to Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the nativities that we all, we think of that and we need to remember that this is actually the restoring of God's power, his authority, his kingdom. It might strike us as a little bit odd, but those who first interacted with the announcement of the birth or even first interacted with the baby Jesus himself, what they first thought of was kingdom, authority, power. They saw it. And so we're going to take some time to pay attention to it this morning. So guys, God intended us to live well, to thrive in harmony with the way that he created the universe, with the way that he created us to relate to each other. In our sin, we rebel against the authority of God, but we were created to thrive as we live under, actually, the authority of God. But with the entrance of sin into this world, the human condition, even our own lives, We have also the entrance of the usurper. Our enemy wants to take God's place in the order of things. And in our sin, we are often all too happy to just simply listen to our enemy instead of to God. So the usurper, our enemy, he sets up his own systems of authority. He he raises up his own kings and queens, his own vision of how leadership works, his own twisted version of justice, winners and losers, and wealth and influence. And we all in this broken world live under the weight of our enemy's version of power and of authority. So God is restoring something. 
God is showing us something completely different, the birth of Jesus. So God promises a king. And here are some of the big ideas of what we're going to walk through this morning. Jesus is going to be a very different kind of king. That's the language that will be used, kingdom, authority, power, throne, but it's different. It's different than what we're used to. It's different than what Mary knows. And so what does it mean for Jesus to be a completely different kind of king and for us to live there? He is promised. The coming of the king is promised from the very beginning. And for a long time, it didn't feel as if the king was actually going to come. But then this is what we celebrate on Christmas. He did, and he came to Mary and Joseph. So he's promised from the very beginning And then the birth of Jesus Christ, it just takes us by surprise. All that it actually means takes us by surprise. His kingdom won't be a normal earthly kingdom that lasts for a little while and then he goes away. His kingdom will last forever. This is vocabulary that shows up over and over again. In the story of the coming of Jesus Christ, the birth of Jesus Christ, his kingdom will last forever. So let's read a little bit of the story of how this happens between the angel and Mary. What does she hear? How does she take it? What is being told to her as the angel appears to her to talk about the birth of Jesus? So in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, it goes like this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. The text that we read begins with, In the sixth month. Now if you go back and you begin to read this from Luke chapter 1, verse 1, The announcement of the birth of Jesus is not the first birth announcement in the Gospel of Luke. It actually opens up with another couple and another angel showing up to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And Zechariah is a priest, and Elizabeth happens to be Mary's cousin. And the text says that they are old, and they are beyond the age of bearing children. He doesn't have a son to carry on his line as a priest, which, of course, to them is a really big deal. So the angel shows up while Zechariah is going about his business inside of the temple and says, hey, listen, your wife Elizabeth is going to conceive, and she's going to give birth to a son, and you're going to give him the name John. And when Zechariah hears this story, he sort of stumbles at it a little bit, and he goes, I'm not sure that can happen. (laughs) I know how these things work, and we're past that now. And the angel says, okay, so here's the sign. You're going to be mute. You will be unable to speak until your son is born and you actually name him John. 
So <clears throat> Elizabeth conceives in the natural sense of the term, but it is still in itself a miraculous conception and a miraculous birth that God gives to Zachariah and Elizabeth. And the John that they give birth to is going to be John the Baptist. He is going to lay the groundwork for the coming of Jesus Christ. So Elizabeth now is pregnant, and she's been pregnant for six months. And that's when our text opens up. So in verse 26 it says, in the sixth month, it's in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Now this angel Gabriel goes to Mary and begins to talk about what's going to happen to her. Mary is a virgin. She's engaged to Joseph. Joseph is part of the house of David. It turns out that Mary, in her own way, is also part of the house of David. Now that becomes important to this story. It's important to them. It's important to what God is doing with the birth of Jesus Christ. That all this happens inside of the household of King David from the Old Testament. So the angel Gabriel shows up. And, you know, we reread these texts. We come to this time of year and we think, oh, this is familiar. I've read this. This is nice. This is beautiful. This has never happened to Mary before. Right? She hasn't read this text every Christmas day. An angel just shows up. And the angel begins with, leads with, the most important thing that is happening to her. Greetings, oh highly favored one. I love the way that Mary responds. She's spooked. <laughs> She's afraid. She's trying to figure out, what does this mean? What kind of greeting is this? How am I favored? What is this all about? Mary has this fascinating interaction with this angel. And it turns out the more that we know about Mary... We know that she truly is highly favored and blessed. She is a devout young woman, probably in her mid to late teens, as a matter of fact. She comes from a poor home. She comes from a poor small village. But she knows her God. She knows her scripture. She knows what God has promised his people. So she is favored by God. But she's also someone who has been seeking after God. She herself is working to lead a devout and righteous life. So we have this magnificent young lady in Mary. And the angel shows up. Just begins talking to Mary. And Mary gets frightened by it. Then the angel says, do not be afraid. I am constantly taken by that phrase. Every single Advent season, as I'm reading through these passages, as I'm working through these passages, that phrase or some version of that phrase, do not be afraid, is the most commonly repeated phrase in the Christmas story. I find that fascinating. That in the story that we take to be peace and love and hope and joy, when it's first being rolled out to Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and, and on and on it goes, more often than anything else, this phrase, do not be afraid, is repeated. Well, these angels keep showing up, and that's a reason for them to be afraid. <laughs> the people of God are getting spooked. They've never seen this happen before. But we have this encouragement to Mary. And what she is about to go through, the angel says, do not be afraid. Now, when the angel speaks to Mary and says that, in the moment, she needs to know you don't need to be afraid. The angel is actually speaking to her. Not just the great big notion, do not be afraid. What Mary is about to go through is completely unique. 
What she is about to go through is going to cause confusion in her soon-to-be husband, Joseph. They're going to have to flee to Egypt. A king is going to actually try to kill their son. What they have to go through now, they need to know from the angel, Mary, you don't have to be afraid. The path that they are on is going to require endurance and faithfulness and work according to the word of God that was given to them in these dramatic moments. So the angel tells her. The angel speaks to us. He says, whatever it is you are on your way through, Christ is born. What is happening is of the Holy Spirit. Don't be afraid. We go back to Zechariah. Zechariah hasn't spoken for however long, and then John is born, and he writes on a tablet. His name is John, not Zechariah, and his mouth is open, and he begins to speak. And when Zechariah opens his mouth, he begins to gripe and complain to God about nine months. you got to be kidding me. I couldn't talk. It's not what he says. He opens his mouth at the end of Luke chapter 1 and says, Blessed be the Lord God for all that he has done. And he begins to talk about what is going to happen with his son. His son is going to lead the way for Jesus to come. His son is going to help bring the hearts of children back to their fathers and reunite God with God's people. And then Zechariah turns his attention to the coming Messiah, the birth of the guy who will be Jesus Christ, and speaks about what he will do and what our lives will be like because of the birth of Jesus. And part of what Zechariah says is in Luke 1, 74 and 75, listen to this. He says that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. This is what the birth of Jesus means, he says. When we really get a hold of what that means, that he is king of this life, of all of creation, and Lord of all human history and eternity, I can live as his servant without fear. There's not much that we can do in this life without fear, but we can freely and courageously serve Jesus Christ without fear. The angel speaks to Mary. The angel speaks to us. Don't be afraid. Jesus is born. God is at work. You belong to him. But then it also contains this larger meaning for us as well. The do not be afraid is for Mary, but then the do not be afraid is, is for everything else. It's for us. It's for all of those who follow Jesus Christ. What God is doing ends up being bigger than just one or two couples or just their nation and their Roman oppressors. It belongs to all of us. The child to be born will be our king as well. The eternal king for anyone who will follow him. And because of his kind of power and authority... None of us need to serve him in fear. Isn't that beautiful? That we can serve him without fear. So this is, I mean, this is big. This is, this is quite the promise that's going on here. So who is it that this Jesus will be? You see, the angel actually walks through some of those things with Mary to describe the, the kinds of roles this child will play, the titles this child will have. And here's some of what the angel tells Mary. Let's go back to verse 32. He will be great 
and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus Christ, the angel says, he's going to be great. Right? Caesar Augustus. Any Roman name that carries that word Augustus with it is a name that means I am worthy of your honor and worship. I am so august. I am so great that you, are, that you are bound to honor me. Any Roman name that contains any version of Maximus in it means I have maximal power and authority. Can I tell you something, guys? Every one of those Augustuses and Maximuses are dead. Jesus is alive. He will be great. He'll be your son, Mary. He will grow up in the home of you and Joseph. He will be the son of David in a very particular way. But what's really important is that he will be the son of the most high God himself. This is unique. And he will have this throne that's been promised to the people of God coming through the line of David. He will reign over God's people, and that reign won't end. There's no election where Jesus gets unelected. There's no point at which that king dies and some other king takes his place. That reign just won't end. So you see, Mary is given this promise of kingdom, of power, of authority with Jesus Christ. And that kingdom and power, it sits in the context of the throne of David and of the people of God and of this forever kind of authority that Jesus has. Now, when this promise is given to Mary, she and Joseph and everyone else, they already have kings in authority over them. In fact, they have several layers of kings and governors and, and leaders who exercise political and military and economic power over all of them. We've got the Roman Caesars, and we've got their governors like Pilate, and we have bloodthirsty families like the Herod family that rule over the territory um, where Joseph and Mary and their baby um, you know, come to the world in Bethlehem. So we've got these layers of earthly authority, and yet this is what Mary is promised. And all these layers of earthly authority for them, this is oppression for them. And because it is oppression, the people of God have been responding in all kinds of different ways. There is what we would call a political party. They're called the Zealots. And they're actually quite active during this time. The lives of Mary and Joseph and John the Baptist and, and Jesus. And here's what the Zealots think. The zealots think we need to restore the throne of David, we need to restore the political and military power of the people of Judah, and we're going to do it by killing as many Romans as we possibly can. We have some of their names in the scripture text as well. We know who these people are even historically. They gather a lot of zealots around them, they perform a raid on a Roman garrison, they all die and it fails. Will Jesus be the greatest of all the zealots? Will he be the one who finally gathers enough people, figures out the attack plan well enough that will kill enough Romans, and then he's going to be able to sit on the throne of his father? Is that what this means? During their lifetimes, we have another group of people who aren't necessarily in that political insurgency, but it's a religious insurgency. 
We have priests and scribes and, and Pharisees, and they're doing their best to hold on to their Old Testament culture and religion and practices. And many of them are trying to undermine the Roman and, and, and rule of Herod that is over them. Well, none of them really quite get their way until they crucify Jesus. But we ask the question, well, when Mary is promised rule and authority and kingship, does that mean that Jesus is going to be the greatest of all the religious insurgents? He's the one who will finally bring about the right kind of revival amongst God's people that we throw off the shackles of Rome and we get to be who we're supposed to be. Is that the kind of king that Jesus is going to be? Now, Mary knows like we know what human power can do how human power goes wrong, even in the best of hands, how human power goes wrong. And we often hope, right, that it will succeed. We don't want to see evil men and women rule. We want to see it succeed as much as we can. But the promise of a king from the line of David has a completely different source of authority, a completely different source of power than anything else that we would call human power and human capability. Well, the angel's talking to Mary about David, and we're talking about David. So let's talk for just a minute about what this means to them, what it means for David to be king, and what it means for us to anticipate the king of kings who will come from the line of David. When we go back into the Old Testament story, and God sets up the actual David as king over his people— in 2 Samuel chapter 10, God creates a covenant with David. He says, David, because of who you are and who I am, this is how I'm going to establish your kingdom. Here's what I want from you, and here is what I'm going to do for you. Part of what God tells King David is this in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. God tells him, in your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. From what we've read already this morning, does this sound like familiar language? We go way back in history, and God has promised this, as a matter of fact, to King David. But you keep reading through the story of the Old Testament, and this is hopeful. This is God's man is finally on the throne. David is finally there. The nation is finally united, and the kingdom is actually physically growing. And God tells him, hey, you're never going to fail to have a son on your line. It's going to be established forever. And if you're a fan of David, you're going, two thumbs up. This is great. This is never going to end. You keep reading the story, and David's story ends kind of, eh. Solomon gets a little bit further down, and then it just it's, gets as bad as it possibly can. As fast as it possibly can, the line of human kings from David fails early and fails often and eventually fails completely. And there comes a point in time with two separate invasions, everyone who has a claim to the throne of Israel or Judah is gone. This is how human authority ends up working. This is how human authority and power has its way. So when God says this kind of thing to David, and imagine you're Mary and Joseph long before these moments when the angel has come to you, 
you are devout and you're looking for the coming of God and you're waiting for him to show up and do for his people what he has promised to do. What does this mean to you? What are we actually looking forward to when God promises David a son, an heir who will sit on this throne forever? Now, much later, after David's lifetime, as it becomes obvious that the line of kings is falling apart, that it's failing, that the invaders are on their way in, and eventually we're all going to be taken off into exile, God speaks to another one of his prophets, a guy by the name of Isaiah. And in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, God begins to talk about what he's going to do. And this is such evocative imagery. In Isaiah 11:1, 1, God says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is David's biological father. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. Isaiah sees a moment where that tree of kings that's supposed to be great and eternal is nothing but a stump. To our eyes, it looks dead. The stump is dead. The roots are still alive. So God says, look, it's not done. To your eyes, it looks done. It's not. And from that stump, there will come a single shoot, and that's the one that will bear the fruit that I want born. God has not forgotten his people. God will not let that promise go. God did not promise that to David in vain. God does not promise that to Mary and Joseph in vain. There will come a a shoot, and it will bear the fruit that God wants it to bear. So Israel, you see Mary and Joseph and Isaiah and, and all of these, they look back to David as this kind of fountainhead from whom this king, whoever this person will be, from whom this king was to come. Even the example in many ways of the kind of king that this king will be. And now this angel starts showing up and talking about the birth of Jesus Christ in the kingdom of God. And this is the one who will sit on that throne. We've been waiting for this one. This is the one whose kingdom will fulfill that promise. This kingdom will never end. As I went through this passage of Scripture and this concept... Again, what is God repairing? What is he putting back together? His rule and authority, he's putting this back together in Jesus Christ. What does it mean for me to belong to an eternal kingdom, to an eternal rule that is different than the kinds of kingdoms and nations that we know? We might be able to give a pretty clear answer of what it means for me to be a citizen of the United States of America, what it means for my responsibilities there, my interactions with my neighbor, right on and on. But what does it mean for me to be a member of a kingdom that doesn't end, that's given to me in Jesus Christ? And when we start answering that kind of question, we begin to see different things come to the surface. Guys, this kingdom, the kingdom of God, will not be political in the sense that you and I understand political. It's not a matter of a political party that someday we'll get to vote for, the kingdom of God party. And if enough nations rally enough support and put enough signs in their front yard and we vote for that political party, everything's going to be fine. And finally, the kingdom of God will come. It's not like that. Praise God is right. (laughs) We want the kingdom of God to influence our politics, but it's not the same thing as that. 
The kingdom of God is not a matter of compromise inside of legislation or a hopeful case brought before a group of judges, and if it goes right, then we have the kingdom of God. It's not like that. And can I tell you something else? The kingdom of God will grow and thrive and be strong no matter what happens with politics and legislators and judges because it is a different kind of thing. The kingdom will be the rule and the reign of God. And as Jesus says over and over in the Gospel of Matthew, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. It's near you. Are you and I ready to find it, to grasp hold of that kingdom, power, authority, lifestyle, and live there? The kingdom of God will not take on a national border, but it will thrive inside of any and every national border. The kingdom of God is not a matter of ethnicity, but it will thrive amongst any group of people who decide to follow Jesus as king. This kingdom is different. This kingdom is amazing what this kingdom can accomplish. This kingdom will not execute what we call normal human justice with all of its brokenness and frailty, but it will eventually rule in perfect mercy and righteousness. We sang it this morning, the king has come. The kingdom is ruled over by God. This kingdom is sustained by God. And it rises to the surface in some of the most surprising ways and in the lives of some of the most ordinary people. We, again, we think of normal human power and influence and authority in terms of extraordinary people in one fashion or another. And yet the kingdom of God boils up in the lives of anybody and everybody. Earthly powers come and go. The kingdom of God will never go away. And with the coming of Jesus to us, he becomes clearly the power and the expression and the lead for the kingdom of God that has now come to us. It is something we can live in. It is something that we can actually begin to show the world around us. There is supposed to be something different about people who follow this king who was born on Christmas Day than anyone else, right? I keep using this word kingdom. We don't use it often, so it can feel a little bit like jargon to us sometimes. Uh, guys, a kingdom is simply a matter of how far a king or a queen can exercise authority. That's how large that kingdom is. It's just a range of exercising authority. So the question is, if the kingdom of heaven is at hand, can that be said about this life? That the authority and the power of God can actually be exercised inside of Phil's heart and mind, his hands, his feet, his eyes, his tongue. Does the kingdom of God exercise authority in our lives? And all that we do is God at work in that kind of way among us. The kingdom of God is an amazing thing. And guys, the scripture tells us several times explicitly, sometimes in the stories that it tells, that the kingdoms of this world will rage and rage and rage against the kingdom of God. And they will fail every single time. 
There's an instance of this inside of this nativity story with Mary and Joseph and the baby. We've got this bloodthirsty ruler by the name of Herod who wants to kill Jesus. And so what happens? God sends Mary and Joseph and Jesus to Egypt. That's fascinating to me. He just scoots them out of the way while a bloodthirsty man does what a bloodthirsty man does. And they're down there in Egypt, safe, away from home, but safe until what happens? Herod just dies. And then God says, you know what, it's safe. Go back home. And they make their way all the way back up to Nazareth in Galilee where Jesus is raised. Herod raged against God, tried to kill God's plan. And God just moved them out of the way. Let nature take its course. And then they go home, and Jesus is fine. The kingdom of God shows up in ways that we wouldn't normally expect, but the kingdom of God is forever. The kingdom of God has a different power and authority that ours cannot touch. We mentioned briefly this passage in Isaiah 11. I want to go back and read a little bit more of this. As God is promising this to Isaiah, it's not just that it looks like it's dead, but it's not. It's an expression, right, of what this ruler is going to be like. And it's everything we want, and it's everything we need. Listen to how Isaiah describes this king in Isaiah 11, the first few verses. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes with what his ears hear, but with righteousness, with a true sense of righteousness, right? He shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. We've used terms like kingdom and throne. Rod is another biblical image for authority and power. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The kingdom of this one who is to come, who is the son of David. This is this eternal kingdom that is brought to us in Jesus Christ. The text says it will be led by the Spirit of the Lord. This this is how much God will be involved, how perfectly God will be involved. And even his son, Jesus the King, his delight will be in the things of God, the fear of God, the awe of God. And everything he do will be righteous and will be just. He will judge rightly, truly, for the poor and the meek. No more kangaroo courts. No more getting away with evil if you have just enough money and power and influence. That's done. Go back to that first question we asked at the beginning. What is God fixing with the birth of Jesus Christ? Why is it important to talk about this? The text actually says that because of the coming of this king, evil will be done away with. Once 
and for all forever. If there is no other answer to that question, what is God fixing in the birth of Jesus Christ, that one's worth it. There is coming a day when Jesus will return and he will set up his righteous kingdom forever and ever and evil will be done. That is a reason to celebrate Jesus Christ, to follow him and live in this kingdom. And this king will be perfectly righteous and faithful and full of mercy. No more human leaders, even with best of intentions, ruling in all of their brokenness and sin. This is the perfect king who has come. And you and I live in that kingdom, and we can be servants of that kingdom. There's one more thing I want us to hear in that conversation between the angel and Mary. So if you go back to Luke chapter 1, we pick up where we left off. Excuse me, Luke 1, it's verse 34. So the angel has laid all this out before Mary. And Mary's first response is, you got to be kidding me. (laughs) I'm a virgin, this can't happen. And the angel just keeps talking with Mary. Verse 34, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, well, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. As the church has understood that doctrine from the very beginning, we understand Jesus to be fully God and fully man. This is incredible what God is doing. And behold, your relative Elizabeth who is in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the child to be born to you will be called holy. He will be the Son of God. Don't worry about this, Mary. This is the work of God. Where with God, nothing like this is impossible. Nothing like this is impossible. What is God busy healing? What is God at work restoring? What is he fixing in the birth of Jesus Christ? He's fixing things that we think might be impossible to fix. He's healing things that we think might be impossible to heal. And whether in this life or in the life to come, all of this will be taken care of because of Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful? And Mary's response. I'm stunned by this every time I go through this. I have to confess to you guys. I've been doing Advent services for 11 years now. And you, you think in the middle of November... Oh, let's see how I can do this one more time. (laughs) How are we going to do this? But I read these passages, and I come across these moments, and I'm struck again. All of this that Mary has heard, all that she has been anticipating, her family, her nation has been anticipating, and this is stunning. It's frightened her what's going to come upon her. And he goes, don't worry about that. Mary hears all of this, and her response is, you know what? Here I am. I'm your servant. Do with me whatever you want to do. You and I have become servants of the kingdom of God. 
May we respond the way that Mary responds. Whatever it is, God, I have no reason to fear. This is the work of the Holy Spirit inside of my life, so here I am. Do with me whatever needs to be done. We are servants of this kingdom, and now we are the people through whom the rest of the world begins to see this kingdom. We begin to see the life of Jesus Christ through Mary and Joseph and Peter and John and James. We begin to see that kingdom through these people, and you and I have now become a part of this. In whatever context we've been placed in, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is in us. And God wants the world to see his kingdom through his people, his servants. Let's pray.